Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. Uh, due to Brian's knee injury, he did not feel that he could stand and teach for an hour, so he's taken another week off, so uh, you're stuck with me this morning. The last few times that I have filled in for him in Christian Life Academy, which admittedly has been a little while, but we've looked at three different examples of men that God killed. Uh, we looked at Uzzah in 1 Chronicles 13, then we looked at King Jehoram in 2 Chronicles 21, and then King Herod in Acts 12. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at another man that God killed, this time from the life of King David. If you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. While you're turning there, uh, I want to remind you of a scene that many of you are probably familiar with out of a movie called The Gladiator. It's one of my uh, favorite scenes in a movie uh, where Russell Crowe's character is in the Colosseum there in Rome. He's just turned his back on the emperor, uh, but is commanded to uh, turn back around, remove his helmet, and identify himself. And so he turns to the emperor and he delivers this little short speech that kind of captures the ethos of the movie. He says, My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions, and loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Now, that makes for a great plot to a movie. Uh, but in real life, there are some pretty major issues with pursuing vengeance, sin issues. Vengeance is not ours, it belongs to the Lord. So as we read this account of first, in 1 Samuel 25 in the life of David, uh, we're going to see David uh, pursuing vengeance uh, and then being reminded that it is not his to pursue. So uh, pay attention to the different characters in the story uh, and their reactions. This is a, a true story, a story of foolishness and offense, of seeking vengeance, but also of wisdom and repentance, and of course the death of a man that God killed. So uh, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 25. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast today. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, one hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me, see, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my lord, on me let this iniquity be. Please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed, and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, Come to meet me. Surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice, and respect your person. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. 
And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. We'll stop there. So this is the story, obviously, of a man that God killed. He strikes Nabal dead. And this time, uh, this man is a wealthy businessman. He's a rancher. He has flocks and herds that are pastured in the wilderness where David has been hiding out. As you'll remember, David has been on the run. Uh, King Saul has been seeking to kill him. So David is hiding out in the wilderness with a group of men that he has gathered around himself. Uh, But even while they're hiding from Saul, from the king, uh, David and his uh, band of soldiers has been out defending the people. Uh, They're defending them against enemies and bandits. In chapter 23, David and his men defended some farmers against raids by the neighboring Philistines. Uh, And then they spend chapter 24 on the run from King Saul. In our text this morning, we find that they have been defending Nabal's herds and flocks from bandits and wild animals in the wilderness. This is untamed, wild uh, territory where the flocks are being pastured. At the end of the season, Nabal is shearing his sheep, and so David sends some men and asks for some food and provisions. And Nabal arrogantly turns them away empty-handed. He refuses their request. He insults them. And so David is upset by this injustice, and he determines to take vengeance on Nabal. Abigail, Nabal's wife, finds out about her husband's behavior. She isn't surprised. This is the kind of man that he is. She hurries to make restitution and to broker some peace between David and her foolish husband. Now, David uh, heeds her counsel and her rebuke. He repents of his intended actions and taking vengeance, and then he blesses her. When she goes and tells her husband what she did uh, and what she had prevented, He reacts in shock, and then God strikes him dead. And then lastly, we're given David's reaction to the news of Nabal's death. There's a lot going on in this chapter. Uh, There are some lessons to be learned here from each one of these actors in the story, from Nabal, Abigail, David, God himself, even David's soldiers and Nabal's servants. There are many great contrasts set up in this story. Nabal's foolishness contrasted with Abigail's wisdom. David's rash, hot-headed desire for vengeance contrasted with Abigail's calm, level-headed peacemaking. Truth be told, Abigail kind of puts the men to shame in this story. Uh, Then there's David's humble estate and the request that he makes contrasted with Nabal's arrogant reply and lavish lifestyle. And of course, there are ways in which we could compare David uh, to Christ But uh, what I want us to focus on is the main point concerning the death of this man, Nabal. Uh, What did he do? What were the circumstances surrounding his death? Why did God kill him? And what are we to learn from it? 
But to get there, we do need uh, to expound on a few of these things that I've just mentioned, primarily Nabal, David, Abigail, and their interactions with one another. So I've given each of them a title that I hope will be helpful as we work our way through this. We have Nabal the fool, David the hothead, and Abigail the wise. Uh, so we'll start with Nabal, and here's what we know about him. He's wealthy. Uh, how he got that way, we don't know, but we are told in verse 2 uh, that he was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, uh, so he's well off. Uh, he has large flocks and herds. We know that he's from the family of Caleb, and if you'll remember, Caleb was one of the 12 spies that Moses had sent into the land uh, in Numbers chapter 13. When everyone else was scared of the Canaanites, it was Caleb uh, who spoke up and had confidence that they could indeed take the land. Uh, He was bold, he was courageous, he was a man of faith uh, who went on to become a great military leader. He was also, we might recall, a member of the tribe of Judah, which means that Nabal is from the same tribe David is. That will be important uh, to the story. Unfortunately, Nabal does not take after his ancestor, Caleb. He's not a great guy. Uh, We're told in verse 3 that that he was a man who was harsh and evil in his doings. Uh, The King James says churlish, which is an older word that means that his personality was ungracious or rude, difficult to get along with. He's not the kind of guy that you want for a friend, an employer, or a husband. Uh, When it says that he was evil in his doings, that indicates his business dealings. He's morally bent. He's crooked. He's he's not uh, the sort of person you'd want to do business with. You wouldn't trust him uh, to act with integrity and to give you a fair shake. If you did business with him, he would always be looking for a way to take advantage of you, to benefit himself at your expense. His own servant who works for him goes to Abigail rather than Nabal because he says in verse 17 um, that he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Uh, The King James says, son of Belial. That's a phrase that's used 27 times in the Old Testament and seems to be a Hebrew figure of speech that means son of worthlessness or that he is a scoundrel or a troublemaker. In Paradise Lost, Milton uses Belial as a character who he described as the equivalent of a priest who has become an atheist. So you want the definition of worthless, it's an atheist who is a priest. Uh, so that's the description we have of Nabal. He's, he's worthless. He's a scoundrel. It's pointless to talk to him because you can't reason with him. He, he wouldn't have listened to his servant. His own wife describes him as foolish in verse 25. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Uh, His name literally means fool. That's what Nabal means. So Abigail says he lives up to his name. She says he's not worth David getting upset over. He's a fool. He's acted like one. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Don't waste your time on him. So so that's the picture that we have of Nabal. He's rich. He's ungracious. He's rude. He's difficult to deal with. He has no integrity, and he is a fool. Uh, Not exactly a flattering picture of someone's character. 
Now let's look at his behavior as he interacts with the other characters in the episode. Nabal is overseeing the shearing of his sheep when David's men come to him with a request for some provisions. His response is exactly how you would expect someone with this sort of character to respond. First, notice what David instructs his men to ask for. He says in verse 8, Ask your young men, and they will tell you, Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Here's the request. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David's men aren't asking for the best food and wine. Uh, They're just asking for whatever Nabal can spare, whatever he can give them, whatever comes to hand. Nothing fancy, uh, not the best uh, of the feast food, just whatever he can have to spare to give to them. His response is in verses 10 and 11. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So in verse 14, his servant reporting to Abigail describes this answer by saying that he reviled them. It wasn't a gracious answer. And and the servant gives us a clue as to the tone of voice and the demeanor of Nabal as he delivers this response. And this is not just a refusal of their request. It's an insult. First, he says, who is David? Who's this son of Jesse? Now, my assumption here is Nabal knows full and good well who David is. It's not been a secret who David is. That They've sung songs about David and about his military accomplishments. He's from the same tribe as David of Judah. Surely he knows who David is. He's been anointed by Samuel as the next king. Uh, His exploits have been sung and talked about throughout the nation. He's been out defending the people while he's on the run from King Saul. What he's saying is not that he doesn't know who David is. He's saying he doesn't care who David is. He doesn't care. It means nothing to him. So that's rude to begin with. But then he continues and says, there are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. So he clearly knows who David is. He's identifying David as a servant who has broken away from his master, who is Saul. And what he is essentially saying is he's calling David a traitorous rebel. He's saying David is an outlaw. He's illegitimate. Why should I give him anything? But there's an overtone here that's more than just political. Listen to verse 11. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? My, 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 my bread, my meat, my water, my shearers. It's very possessive language. You can almost picture Gollum hunched over the ring going, my precious, right? That's how Nabal is with his possessions. They're his. He's, he's very jealous of his possessions, even the water. Uh, he's not willing to share with them, which only serves to make the point that uh, this isn't a fault that's unique to Nabal, right? This, this is kind of possessiveness is a sin that we're all likely to fall in from time to time. Uh, when my brothers were teenagers, they got involved in team roping, and so they would go to rodeos uh, and team rope. Now, if you've ever been to a rodeo, team roping is not the most exciting event at the rodeo. 
Uh, everybody comes to watch the bull riding, the bronc riding, and there are always far more team ropers than they're going to let compete in the actual uh, part of the rodeo where the fans are there watching. And so what they do is they draw numbers and they allow a certain number of the team ropers to compete uh, and during the competition, and the rest of them compete afterwards, after the rodeo's over and the fans have been sent home, and they call that slack. They're competing during slack. So the fans watch the rodeo. They don't know who actually won the team roping event because it hasn't been decided yet until the slack happens. But my brothers are competing, and so my mom and dad would go with them to the rodeos, as good parents would do, and sit and watch them rope. Uh, but they might have to stay all day because they didn't know if they were going to get their number drawn to compete during the main part of the rodeo or have to wait and compete afterwards. So my dad buys these camp chairs for them all to sit in, Oftentimes they're sitting out by the trailer or they're sitting beside the bleachers or something waiting uh, for their turn. So everyone else has a normal camp chair. My mom has a fancy one. Dad bought her a really nice one. Uh, it had armrests, drink holders, a footrest, the whole nine yards. My brothers loved to aggravate my mom. So if she got up to go to the bathroom or anything, one of them would be in that chair. And she would come back and she would say, that's my chair. That one's mine. So my brothers decided they were going to label everyone's chairs. So they wrote everyone's name with a Sharpie on the back of their chair. And on the back of hers, they wrote mine instead of putting her name on there. We all do this in sinful ways on a regular basis, don't we? we take, we're very possessive uh, in our ownership of our things. Uh, and so we act like Nabal, claiming ownership over water, claiming ownership over things that we don't really have a right to as the owners. Uh, you might think of a time when someone has cut you off in traffic as you're, as you're driving and thought, hey, what are you, buddy, what are you doing getting over here in my lane? My lane? Since when does the lane belong to me? Uh, so, you know, just like we saw in, in the story of King Herod when we looked at that story in Acts 12, he claimed glory that did not belong to him. It belonged to God. And so we, we do this all the time, uh, claiming ownership over things that we have no control over and that are not rightly ours. And so at its root, this is about claiming ownership. Uh, it's really something only God can do. We are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And so ultimately, we're servants we're not owners. There's another scene here in Nabal's life that we should mention just now, and it comes when Abigail returns from her peacemaking mission in verse 36. Now, Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. I worked on a cattle ranch in Wyoming for a number of years, and uh, during branding season, uh, it was a lot of work, and all the ranchers would gather together at one ranch and, and do the branding on that ranch, and then we would have a giant feast uh, at the end of the week after we had finished that work. It's a celebration of a job completed and everyone cooperating together to, to make it happen. So that's what's happened here. Nabal has gathered all of his herds together, his flocks together. They've sheared the sheep. They're having a feast. Uh, the work is finished, and so they're throwing a feast. I don't begrudge Nabal his feast, but the text does make it sound like perhaps he went a little overboard. It says that he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. He turned David's men away without so much as a fresh drink of water. 
and then proceeded to feast and get drunk like a prosperous king. Nabal was stingy. He was insulting toward David, but he was lavish and indulgent with himself. Instead of sharing the blessing of wealth that God had given him, he abused it and he got drunk. Uh, And here's one of those contrasts that I mentioned at the beginning. David, the anointed king, is hungry in the wilderness while Nabal, the fool, feasts like a king on wealth that David had protected for him. That's quite a contrast between these two men. Nabal is a prosperous fool. He's greedy, manipulating. He took advantage of David's protection without repaying his kindness. He's rude, selfish. He turned away David's hungry men, insulted them, and then ate and drank himself into a stupor. Given all of this, I think we can probably sympathize with David's reaction, even though it is sinful. Which brings us to David, the hothead. David didn't start out uh, at the beginning of the story as a hothead. Uh, In Act 1 of the story, David is a humble man with a servant's heart. He protected Nabal's flocks and his herdmen at his own expense. He made a very gracious and humble request, uh, appealing to Nabal's kindness, not realizing uh, that there was none there to appeal to. He defended Nabal's wealth against loss, and in return, he asked only for whatever comes to your hand, whatever you can spare. He humbly called his army Nabal's servants and himself Nabal's son. He didn't demand repayment for a debt. He didn't demand Nabal pay him tribute as the anointed king. He humbled himself. He called himself a servant and a son. He showed respect and humility, seeking fatherly generosity and asking for a simple loaf of bread. Nabal proved himself to be more wicked than even Jesus' listeners in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Or what man is there of you whom, if his son asked bread, will give him a stone? Nabal didn't even offer a stone. He only offered insults and sends David's men away empty-handed and then ate and drank himself into a stupor. When David hears Nabal's response, he responds with anger and indignation. He led 400 men armed with swords towards Nabal's feast with the intent to kill, and not just Nabal. In verse 21, Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David intends to kill all the men in Nabal's household. He intends to wipe out the entire family line, leaving no heir to this fool. But more than that, David regrets the good that he had previously done. He said in verse 21, surely in vain I have protected all that belong to him. Surely in vain I have done this good thing. Because Nabal repays evil for good, David regrets doing the good. But David isn't thinking Christianly here. He's thinking, I did good. Now I'm being repaid with evil. I shouldn't have wasted my time doing the good to begin with. But that thought betrays wrong motives. If the good was done only for what the doer will get out of it, then it wasn't really good to begin with. It was selfish. We are to do good not for our own sake, but for the sake of others. Notice David's vow in verse 22. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. 
Nabal was foolish and stingy and insulting, but now David is vowing to wipe out his entire family line. And notice that David doesn't put the curse side of the vow on himself should he fail to keep it. He puts it on his enemies. That's not the normal convention for this sort of thing. Normally, it would be something like this. May God do so and more also to me if I don't do X, Y, Z. But David doesn't even put that curse on himself. He puts it on his enemies. And so here's another one of those contrasts. David puts off on other people, sparing himself harm, while Abigail, as we'll see in a moment, takes the retribution to herself in order to spare others. That contrast between Abigail and David is very stark here. David is out for vengeance. How often are we like David in this passage? Somebody offends us in some way and we rail at them. We want to get even with them. We want vengeance. An obvious example of this is road rage. And my dad was guilty of this. In fact, one time someone cut him off on the interstate and he sped up and jockeyed around in order to pull even with the guy and looked out the window at the guy and did this, motioning and shooting the man with his fingers. Talk about road rage. We were just lucky the guy didn't pull a real gun and shoot back. Maybe somebody speaks to you the way Nabal spoke to David's men, biting, mean, demeaning, insulting comments. We respond in kind or say even worse things in response. This happens a lot in families. Uh, Between siblings or spouses, a disagreement turns into an argument which devolves into insults and hurtful things are said. And when you've been hurt by someone, by something that they've said to you, you lash out with hurtful words of your own, seeking vengeance on the one who has wronged you. Or perhaps someone takes you for granted. They don't acknowledge uh, or say thank you for the kindness that you've done to them, just as Nabal didn't show any thankfulness for David's kindness towards him. And so you begin to dialogue with yourself the way David has, thinking, I shouldn't have done that for them. I shouldn't have shown them any kindness to begin with. They don't deserve it. I certainly won't do it again not for someone that doesn't even have the courtesy to say thank you. The thing here about David in this passage that's so encouraging in the midst of this is his willingness to listen to rebuke and wisdom when it confronts him. And that rebuke comes from someone who is well beneath him politically and socially, not to mention that she's the spouse of the one who offended him and that he is seeking vengeance towards. Can you imagine that? Someone offends you, and their spouse or their child comes and rebukes you because you're seeking vengeance. Would you have the humility to listen to that rebuke? David does. That's quite astonishing. But this brings us to Abigail the wise. Abigail is the wife of the fool, which is quite ironic here. Wisdom is married to foolishness. And as I've already said, Abigail is a study in contrast between these two men. Nabal is a fool. Abigail is wise. Nabal is unapproachable, but she listens to the words of the servant and then acts on them to right the wrong that her husband has committed. Nabal is stingy. 
Abigail is generous. Look at verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. So Nabal wouldn't give them so much as a, a drink of water, but Abigail gives them wine, bread, meat, corn, raisins, fig cakes. Nabal is arrogant and demeaning toward David and his men, but Abigail bows before him, addresses him as Lord multiple times. Nabal refuses to acknowledge David as the anointed one of the Lord, but Abigail reminds David of who he is. In verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. God had promised that a son of David's would sit on the throne forever. And here David is worrying about the actions of a fool. David fights the Lord's battles, not his own. But here he is seeking vengeance. And so Abigail reminds him that he has been anointed to be king over the nation She says in verse 29, Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. God protects your life from the sword of King Saul. Why are you worked up about offensive words from a fool? In verse 30, And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. Despite the foolish actions of Nabal, David will be king because God has decreed it. Then in verse 31, she says that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. David will be king over the nation. He needs a clear conscience if he is to rule well as God's man. What a woman Abigail is. What wisdom. She, she cares for the life of a worthless husband, for the defenseless servants who have been put in danger by his foolish and brash words. She cares about David's hungry soldiers. She cares about David himself because he is the anointed one of God to be king over the nation, and she wants him to be able to rule with a clear conscience. Her concern for justice to be dealt with appropriately by God and not by David seeking his own vengeance. David sought harm to others, but she would rather suffer harm to herself for something that someone else did rather than to see others suffer. She says in verse 24, So she fell at his feet and said, On me, O my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. When David sought vengeance, Abigail sought peace where David saw only the hand of an evil man at work. Abigail saw God at work. She says in verse 26, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. She saw God at work in the timing of their meeting which she had so tirelessly and hastily arranged. 
David then listens to Abigail's wise and winsome words. He repents of his actions, of the harm that he had sought to do against Nabal and his household, and he sends her away in peace. She's quite a woman, and David will not soon forget her. But finally, we come to the death of Nabal, and in this we consider God, the judge. This is an interesting death because Nabal dies three times in this text, and you'll see what I mean in just a minute. Abigail returns home, but she doesn't tell Nabal what she has done because of the state that she finds him in in verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So this is Nabal's first death, uh, the death of any shred of wisdom or any shred of common sense that he might still have had. Uh, His life hung in the balance that night. David is marching his way with 400 hardened veterans of war intending to wipe out Nabal's entire household, and Nabal is dead drunk, feasting in his house like a king. In obvious danger, he has drunk himself into a stupor. Uh, This is not only a sin, it's the height of foolishness given the danger that he is in. The next morning, his wife relates to him both the danger and her solution to the problem in verse 37. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. So here's his second death, another of those contrasts that we see Uh, between characters. The previous night, his heart had been merry with wine, and now it's dead as a stone. This is his second death, the death of joy, the death of any life within him. Though he lives on physically for a short time, he is as dead as a stone on the inside. Perhaps it was the shock of uh, knowing what danger he had been in, or the sense of loss Uh, that Abigail had taken and given away his possessions that he so greedily uh, and obsessively possessed. Maybe it was shame that his life had been saved by his wife. Whatever the cause was, he died on the inside. His heart was dead within him. His inner man lost the will to live. And then comes his final death physically in verse 38. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So once again, God has struck down a man to the dust. He's ended his earthly life, and and we have to ask why. Why? Why did God kill Nabal? There are many fools in the world. Why did God kill this particular one? Well, the text answers the question for us, I think, in verse 39. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. So there are two reasons that are given in this verse. First, God has executed justice for Nabal's wrongdoing. But again, God will execute justice on all wrongdoers eventually. So why this particular man at this time? Well, I think it is to show that God is the one who will see that justice is done, not David, not me, not you, God. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy there, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, where the Lord speaking says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. I think God is making this point for David before he becomes king so that he will be a better king. God is making this point uh, that David is not the one to seek vengeance. And we see this in the life of David, don't we? David doesn't, when he becomes king, there are other instances where people revile him, insult him, and he does not exact vengeance upon them. Now, he does ask his son Solomon to do so after his death, but David himself does not seek vengeance. He learns this lesson. And God is making this point for us, too, that we might learn from it not to seek our own vengeance, to seek to get even with someone that has done us wrong. But there's a second reason given in verse 39. He says, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. God worked through Abigail and then struck Nabal dead in order to keep David from sin. But now this raises another question. God doesn't keep David from all sin, so why this one? God doesn't keep David from his sin with Bathsheba, so why does he keep him from this sin? Why does he keep him from seeking vengeance? Well, I think the answer is found in Abigail's words in verses 30 and 31. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. God is preserving his plan for David's kingship. How readily would the people have followed David as their ruler? How faithful would the tribe of Judah had been to David's line, which we do see in the course of the history of Israel? But how, how faithful would they have been to David's line had David taken his own vengeance on another member of the tribe of Judah? The people loved him because he defended them against the Philistines and other enemies. But if he had the reputation for killing his own tribesmen because they were a jerk and said some mean things, his ability to rule well would have been severely hampered. And that is a lesson that we all could learn as well. As husbands, as fathers, as elders in the church, we need to learn that if we seek our own vengeance against perceived faults, people will not readily follow us. So why is this important? God has made a covenant with David to bring the Messiah from his line. He has promised that a son of David would sit on the throne forever. But for that to happen, David must first sit on that throne. God keeps his word. He ensures the end from the beginning. He preserves peace. He preserves the people in his righteousness. God taught David not to pursue his own honor at the expense of a clean conscience. He taught David to know that he was only a man and not the judge of all the earth. That title belongs to God alone. It's a lesson that David learned. It's a lesson that King Herod didn't learn when we looked at his example in Acts 12. Nabal the fool, David the hothead, and Abigail the wise, and God the judge of all the earth. 
Ultimately, as we look back on this text through the lens of the New Testament, we see that God's covenant promise to bring forth a son from David's line, a son who would rule in righteousness, that covenant promise was kept. Here we see David as an outcast king, anointed, but with no place to sleep, with a small band of followers wandering from place to place in the wilderness, helping people, doing good to Nabal, and being repaid with evil. And then David's initial sinful reaction was to repay evil with evil. But in the New Testament, we see the greater David, Christ, who is an outcast king, anointed, but with no place to lay his head, with a small band of followers wandering from place to place, helping people. He did only good, and he was reviled, abused, mocked, and killed. But he repaid evil with good, with sacrifice, with grace, and with mercy. Christ is the greater king, a humble king, who served those who didn't deserve his kindness. He extends forgiveness to all those who will repent and turn from their selfish ways, just as David repented and turned from his selfish ways. But he is also the king who is coming in righteousness to judge the earth. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He comes not with 400 armed men, but with the very armies of heaven behind him. He won't strike down one man who acted foolishly, but he will strike the nations with the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He will execute justice on all the Nabals of the world, all those who say in their heart there is no God, which is the definition of a fool. Yes, he is the Lamb of God who shed his blood for the sins of his people, but he is also described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and vengeance belongs to him. We are to fear him, but to trust him as well. Trust his love and his mercy. Repent of, his, of our own selfish desires for vengeance and trust his justice. For in the end, he will repay. There may be times when, when people in this world, evildoers, appear to get away with their evil acts, appear to get away without having justice served. But in the end, justice will be served, and far more effectively than you or I ever could. And like the servant who was forgiven much by his Lord, we also must forgive those who offend us. For truly, an offense against Brant or against Paul or Doug or any of us doesn't mean much. It's pretty small in comparison to an offense against an almighty and holy God. Trust him to forgive you as you forgive others and trust him to see justice done in the end. Let's pray.